here? This is a mistake. It's a mistake putting me up here a second time. I mean, four of you who actually enjoyed the message last time, you're just going to be let down because you're going to figure out what the rest of these people who are looking for the door already know, that I need to go back to selling elevators. So let's do ourselves a favor. Let's pray this morning for God's grace. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are holy. We thank you that we are able to come and worship as a church family together this Sunday morning. We pray for your grace this morning as we approach your word. Pray that you would give me the right words and that any words you would not have me speak would be struck from the record. We thank you so much, Lord, for the salvation you've provided through your son. We pray that we would keep this in mind as we approach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, we'll turn our attention to the letter of 2 John. Second John, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. I did see that the Bibles are coming down. So I think that they've been distributed, which is great. If you don't have a Bible at home, and you were just given one from one of the ushers, please take it with you. Read it as a gift from Anacostia River Church. We hold precious God's Word here. And it's our greatest desire that we would make disciples by sharing His Word liberally. And if you are using that Bible, 2 John can be found on page 1025, 1025. This is a small book in the Bible. It's a short letter that sits in between two other letters that are dealing with the same themes and issues. That God is life, light, and love. And we can be assured of our faith in this. The beginning of 1 John helps, uh, helps to give us a sense of the tone and the topic of all three of these letters. I'll read it to you now. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The writer, John, uses this as the basis for the practical claims that he would make throughout all of these letters and the letter that we will read today. This start is meant to make some material claims. That is, I think I've got the lawyers excited here. Claims are material if if they are untrue, They will dispel any other claim. That was what John was doing at the beginning of 1 John. And overall, the big claim here, the material claim, was that he personally and others with him had fellowship with Jesus Christ himself in the flesh. Jesus being God and life, who had done all things that were recorded in the Gospels, was heard and seen and touched directly by John, this writer. This was important because he was fighting against a growing heresy that Jesus had not come in the flesh. And this was calling some early believers to lose their assurance in the faith. Second John is addressed to a group of believers who were in the middle of this confusing time in the early church. So let's read the full letter, and then we're going to focus on verses just 1 through 3 this morning. So please turn there if you have already turned away. Verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us 
and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. From God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is the word of the Lord. If you're keeping an outline for today, the theme is this, that believers are peacefully bound in the truth. Believers are peacefully bound in the truth. And as I said earlier, we're going to focus only on the first three verses today. So in verse one, we will find that truth is a commonality. Truth is a commonality. Verse 2, we will find that the truth dwells in us. The truth dwells in us. And in verse 3, we'll find that the truth restores peace. The truth restores peace. Let's look at verse 1, where we find that truth is a commonality. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. The elder, John, who loves in truth, is the writer here. This John is, is almost certainly the disciple that Jesus loved. As this letter is consistent with the language of the other two letters that are around it and the gospel of John. And at this point, he's an old man, an elder, living in Ephesus. Ephesus is situated on the western coast of, of Turkey, and that's near to the other six churches in Revelation, as well as other sites that are mentioned in the Bible, like Troas or, or Perge. And like, like the other disciples, John was on the front line of the gospel march, from the four corners of the block in Jerusalem to the four corners of the globe. So he, he's in the truth, and he writes in that way, and he's writing to the elect lady. Now, this elect lady was either an actual lady with children or a particular church with members. There's some debate about that. But either way, it wasn't a circular letter. It was not a letter that was expressly meant to be passed from church to church there in Asia Minor or the west coast of, of Turkey. And now note, that in verse 12, at the end of the letter, John says, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. So that's an indicator of this fact that this letter was being specifically written to a group of people or a person as well. And there's some familiarity here. John wants to see them face to face. It's not as though he's, he's distant to the situation. As I said, he's on the front line as well as these other churches in Asia Minor as the gospel is going out. And he says that he would like to, to see them and, 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 and be with them that our joy may be complete. 
That's the same as the beginning of 1 John. Writing and sharing the things of God with one another. It stirs up joy in us. It's part of the effect of having a, a commonality in the truth. That's why we gather habitually Sunday mornings, Thursday nights, in our, in our various Bible studies throughout the week. And, and even tonight, it just gatherings just to get together. Now, these recipients, they were probably pretty hospitable. They were a, of a good reputation, and that's why they were loved. And in fact, later in the, in the letter, he warned about who they might welcome into their midst because they had a kind of an open-door policy. They were bringing people in and being hospitable. And lastly about this group, the, this lady, this church, is elect. Much can be said about the word elect. Often it, it elicits difficult discussions among believers. But the thrust of the New Testament, all of the writers who use it, they're using the word for the believer's assurance. Being elect is an assurance of having truth and eternal life by knowing that our salvation does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. Read in Titus 1, 1 and 2, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. There we see it plainly stated by Paul that God's elect have the truth. You can also flip over to 2 Peter. Peter joins with John and Paul in their reminder of assurance. 2 Peter 1, verse 10. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have... I think it is right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir up by way of reminder, since I know that the, the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So this address from John to the lady, it's, it's, it's a, also a reminder it's an effort to bring about assurance even when John is gone. Assurance to all the believers who are living in a time when, when the very gospel is being questioned. That's why the term elect is used, to provide assurance. And this commonality, it's not only shared between the writer and the readers of the letter, but it's inclusive of all who dwell in the truth. We know that practicing the truth is walking in the light. In the first letter, John says this, If we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And so it's a very simple distinction. He goes on, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's a wonderful thing. Truth is a commonality for all believers. In Christ, we can have fellowship not only with the people in this room, but with all believers across this city, country, and world. I find this reminder particularly helpful during a time of such fracturing in this world. Our society is full of fault lines, and these fault lines are derived from the fact that truth is not a commonality for all people. We live in a postmodern society where people feel as though truth can be whatever they feel it to be. So, of course, there's not going to be commonality amongst many people who think that truth is different. 
But that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is an enduring truth, the one truth that all believers fall under. Yet falsehood and deceit has divided us often. Let's take a look at this in Genesis 3. Turn in your Bibles, we'll spend a little bit of time there. Genesis 3. Start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. Well, believers are bound in a, in a common truth. Satan used deceit to cause immediate discord. Verse 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Wrong. False. Lie. God expressly stated that they would die if they ate from that tree. But Adam and Eve believed the lie. They ate of the tree, and then three things happened. First, man divided himself from God. Genesis 3, 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Have you ever had that experience? And you sin, you're in shame, and you're trying to act like God doesn't see you? You, look, you sit on the couch and you look over in that Bible sitting over there on the table and you're like, I'm not opening that today. And you know, better yet, I'm going to go, I need to clean up, I'm going to put it on the shelf. It's only funny because of how foolish it is. You can't hide from an omnipresent God. He's going to find you out like that Gideon Bible that's on the nightstand in the hotel. Can't run from God. As a Christian, this experience should happen less and less as we grow in godliness. Don't try to hide from God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So don't hide among the trees. The second thing that happened was that man divided from each other. Verses 11 and 13. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? The man said, The woman who, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the uh, fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now imagine this scene. If you ever want to understand why us guys, where we get our blockheadedness from, read this passage again. Adam first calls out God. Well, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit. Can you imagine God's face at this moment, and Eve's face? God kind of like, excuse, excuse me? And the woman like, excuse me? God just kind of moves on from the moment. And he just turns to Eve to get that straight answer that Adam was too dense to provide. And all kidding aside, how often do these situations where lies are involved devolve to this terrible kind of scene of blame and finger-pointing and then consequences. Are we divided from each other? Is the disagreement that we have based on a, a rumor or a false perception? Church, we need to be on guard for this. Churches get torn asunder when lies and rumors and deceit start spreading like gangrene into the congregation. 
God is not glorified by this. I'll tell you some story a little bit later, but I can tell you personally, it comes with some of the deepest hurt you've ever experienced when you see God's church fracture. Galatians tells us, if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Let this not be true of us, church. Let's be a church that's peacefully bound in the truth. But lastly, one other thing happened in the garden. Man divided himself from God. Man divided themselves from each other. And finally, God divided himself from man. Verses three, uh, 23 and 24 Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned, uh, turned way to guard the way to the tree of life. And should the story end here, this would be hopeless. But in this letter in 2 John we find that the truth is still reigning, even after this garden banishment. What was once divided became united in truth. How did that come about? Let's move to verse 2. It came about because the truth dwells in us. Because of truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. The truth dwells in us in three ways. First, ethereally, that is, spiritually. Second, eternally. And thirdly, exclusively. So ethereally, let's look into that. The truth dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. John 14, the Gospel of John 14, verses 15 through 17 say, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth, dwelling in the believer. In knowing and loving Jesus Christ, the Spirit dwells in us. In fact, we cannot know Christ without being born of the Spirit. So we can be quite assured that in loving Christ, we have the Spirit of truth dwelling in us. More so, the truth dwells in us eternally. Eternally. The Helper, the Spirit, will be with us forever. This fellowship is a divine gift Jesus says in, in the Gospel of John, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Then we see this fulfilled at Pentecost in, in Acts 2, which begins the age of this type of pouring out of the Spirit onto believers. And it's too your and my advantage that this happens. It's, it's better that we have the helper. Often we might get caught up in, oh, if only Jesus were here. But Jesus says in his word, it's like, no, I need to send the Spirit to you. That's better. I'm going to come back. But it's better for you right now to have the Spirit. It's going to accomplish a work that I need accomplished before I restore all things to myself. Take advantage of that truth. Feel the presence of the most holy God right now. Eternity starts today for the believer. We're preparing ourselves for the return of Christ in the eternal reign of his kingdom. John 14 also says this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. It's at that time when Jesus comes back 
that we'll have an even better grasp of the oneness of God and our true communion with Him. It's our greatest hope. Lastly, the truth dwells in us exclusively. Exclusively. Romans 8 verse 9 states clearly, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does, who does not have the Spirit, Spirit of Christ, I'm sorry, let me, I'll go back there. If, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. This is an exclusive commonality of, of those in the truth, those who are elect, those in Christ, that is, Christians. This is how we're bound together in a supernatural way, through the indwelling of the Spirit that is exclusive only to Christians, holding one truth. John states in his first letter, he has given us of his Spirit, and we have seen him and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And I want to be clear on this point. Well, the dwelling of the truth is exclusive to the believer. The invitation to share in the truth, it stands for you today. On the day of Pentecost, Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, that's, that's the nation of Israel, and for all who are far off, everybody else, the entire world. The message of the gospel now goes to all people everywhere. And this is good news. It's good news because of verse 3. The truth restores peace. Verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. This is the last verse we'll examine today. Maybe we'll get through the others at another day. But here we find that the truth restores peace, firstly, as elect and indwelled. We are assured grace, mercy, and peace. It will be with us. That's what it means to be elect and indwelled. So let's, let's turn our attention towards how the truth restores peace, um, restores peace from, from the grace and mercy that is with us. Grace is receiving what we do not deserve. And mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. We don't deserve so great a salvation. But we have received it. We do deserve a spiritual death. But we do not receive it. And both these things are from God the Father who sent his Son. So let's fan them out a bit. The truth restores peace to those who are elected and dwelled, and it restores peace with God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Each time I read this verse, it just leaves me in awe. It's the ultimate mic drop. How could I have peace with a holy Holy, holy God. And we gave this significant attention when we explored Psalm 62 a few weeks ago. And for those who weren't there, or for those who need to hear it again, all of us, let me reiterate this all-important answer to you with a bit of background. God created us in his image. And he created each and every one of us says in Genesis 1, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. But despite all of the goodness God had provided in and around mankind, man rejected God's goodness. And believe the lie that what he said is not true. In doing so, we act in sin. Adam and Eve did that by eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we already visited the result, death and separation. We have done the same in our own way. That result is the same for us, death and separation from God. Isaiah 59 puts it this way, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that it does not hear. I'm happy that the story doesn't end there. And it doesn't end because of God but God. God always desires enduring mercy and love. Ephesians 2 says of mercy, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That New Testament verse confirms what we already know of God from Exodus 34. When Moses was with God and he's asking, what should I tell the people who have sent me? The Lord says this, I am Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is where our assurance of parting came from this morning. This definition is directly from God. It's it's him saying, this is who I am. There's no more true definition of God than what he says he is. So now I want to key into something that John taps into throughout all of his letters and in the gospel. We find it in verse 3 where he says, in truth and love. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Exodus 34, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I want to reference something that John Mark Comer, he's a pastor in Portland, helped point out to me about about this correlation. In the Exodus passage, God abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, the Hebrew words are hesed and emeth. Hesed and emeth. I'm probably saying them wrong. Talk to the Swansons about how you're actually supposed to say them. Now, hesed can be translated steadfast love, unfailing love, mercy, covenant loyalty, or loving kindness. Emeth can be translated faithfulness, truth, sureness, trustworthy. In both, both words, the English just does not provide a good translation to convey the full weight of these words. And more so, when the two words are joined together like they are in Exodus 34, they help to define each other in a way that assures one of the other. So thus, in Exodus... His love is faithfulness, and his faithfulness is love. Loving faithfulness, faithfulness, love. And it seems that John taps into this with his deep understanding of who God is throughout all of his letters. His love is truth, and his truth is love. I I think maybe this is why we sometimes find John's claims a bit circular or even confusing when we're reading the gospel or reading the letters. But I think it comes from a richer understanding of God's attributes by John. 
the disciple who Jesus loved, the disciple who reclined on, on Jesus' side at, at the Last Supper. He knew that Jesus Christ is, in fact, faithful and true. And it is his objective to make that abundantly clear in 2 John. Understanding now that truth restores peace with God because of this hesed and this emeth, we understand that it is through Jesus Christ, the one who is named faithful and true. John 1, 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace, as we said, getting something that we don't deserve, unmerited favor. In this case, this is life. The ultimate grace, getting us life from Jesus. Ephesians 2 says, by grace you have been saved. And raised, up, uh, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This he did by living a, a sinless life and then became sin for us and endured the punishment of death on our behalf. Then, to prove that he, he has the authority to do this, he rose from the dead that we might have the same hope. Now, we accept this substitutionary gift by repenting of our sin and placing our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of that sin. Then, we receive the promise of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth to dwell in us, binding us together in the truth of the gospel. Romans says, for if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Because he came and he walked among us in the flesh, it will be our privilege to walk with him as Adam and Eve had once again. He brought to life and united those in truth who were once dead and divided in deceit in the garden. And he's not done. Jesus is coming back to fully restore all things to himself and make all things new. This is the great gospel hope that the Christian is bound together in. So he calls us to follow him until that time that he returns and we shall be like him. Of truth, why do we know that, that this gospel message is the full truth? How can we be sure of it? Jesus made the claim. He says, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As C.S. Lewis put it, he's either a lunatic or he is indeed God. And that's why John goes to great lengths to establish that he had seen him and heard him and touched him in the flesh to establish the truth that Jesus is and was and always will be all he has ever claimed to be. There is no clearer direction than what he himself provides. There is one way to peace. John is clear that truth does not, well, does not dwell with those who reject this gift of forgiveness, though. God does not remain with those who do not confess him as Lord. They are cast out of his presence into the lake of fire. That's the second death. So accept the gospel truth and enter into God's truth today, into his life and light. 
Jesus offers peace to those indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We covered this at length in Psalm 62. Let me read it again. John 14, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as though the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So we're peacefully bound in the truth as this truth is a commonality amongst us as it dwells in us. Um, I forgot my last point. Look at that. And it then restores peace with God. That makes us elect, bound, co-heirs with the living God. Romans says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. That means that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. I am thankful to be so blessed and bound in this truth. God has dealt graciously with me by calling me into his family as a young child And I've been asked to share my testimony with you this morning, so I'll finish up by telling you how I am peacefully bound in the truth. I was raised about two miles north of O'Hare Airport, uh, just outside of Chicago, Illinois, in a little place called Des Plaines. It's where the first corporate McDonald's was established. I was raised by two parents who were Christians. My mother, raised in a Christian household, her mother was from a a lineage of Christians. Her father converted after meeting my grandmother. On my dad's side, my two great-grandparents came from Mexico and met in Chicago. They became saved through the ministry of a man named George Marius Schmidt. He looked like Colonel Sanders. This picture of white robes and white beard, it's great. They had eight children, one of them named George Marius He named his son George Marius and his son George Marius. I stand before you as the third. My parents were actively involved in church since I was born. Um, My father being a Sunday school superintendent and my mother helping in amazing ways to make sure that that program would run well every Sunday morning. So from a young age, I heard children's songs. No, you can't get to heaven without salvation. Jesus loves me. The B-I-B-L-E. My dad would take all of these these songs for the Sunday school and put them on these cards, and he'd have kids, you know, hold them up, and we'd all sing these songs. And that is how I first remember being encountered with the truth of the gospel. And at age four, I remember being in the car with my mother, driving just just near O'Hare, and I said, Mom, what do I need to do to be a Christian? And she said, well, you ask for forgiveness of your sins and you trust in Christ that he died on the cross for you and that your sins are forgiven. And so on that night at age four, I did that. That was the night I was converted. I didn't have any later on uh, newer revelation or feeling that that was um, not a, a true confession. It was at age four. I believed it. And from that age... I grew up in that church where my dad was a Sunday school superintendent. Uh, And at age 13, all the things there seemed to fall apart. Satan ravaged that church to the point that 10 years later, it shut its doors. Went from a brimming, wonderfully gospel-centered church to closed. So at age 13, I was confused. I wanted to understand 
why this happened and how it could never happen again because it is God's bride. So I investigated the letters. I I read as many of the epistles as I could to understand what a church was supposed to be like. At that time, there was no nine marks, so I didn't have those books to help supplement my study. I'm grateful for them today. Also, at around age 13, I met my wife, Michelle Candace Moore, at the time. We were in sixth grade, maybe a little younger than 13, and at age eight, we started dating, whatever that means. And I'm not endorsing it. I'm not saying it's smart. I'm saying it's what happened. <laughs> she became a Christian. Her brother became a Christian. Some of you know him. Some of her friends. And Michelle and I went through high school, bringing kids to youth group and enjoying some wonderful time in our youth. Then I went to college. And in college... I wanted to understand better who Jesus Christ was. I had done all of this work in the epistles. I had done all of these things going, thinking about the church and policies and this is how things should be and all this. And I realized, I don't know how much I know who Jesus really is. How does he manifest himself in that church? That was made most apparent to me on probably the the second most formative time in my life when I went to the Cornerstone Music Festival. Cornerstone Music Festival is basically Christian Woodstock. It was around for about 30 years, founded by the Jesus People USA. This was a group of people that back in the 70s, they got in a van on the East Coast and they started driving west in a van that said, Jesus loves you. And it broke down in Chicago. So they bought a building there, they stayed there and started various ministries. (laughs) One of those ministries was the Cornerstone Music Festival in Macomb, Illinois, middle of nowhere, And they did this festival around July 4th, hot as blazes, every single year, dusty. But I remember driving up to the Cornerstone Festival, and there'd be these little signs, you know, Cornerstone 20 miles away, Cornerstone 5 miles away. And as I drove into the complex, it was just a sea of people, all types of people, big people, small people, skinny, fat, black, white Mohawked, fauxhawked, tattooed, whatever, that person was there. And I just remember looking and going, these are God's people? All of them? I'm missing something here. I've been missing the fact that there's more of God's people than people who just look and act and talk like me. God's gospel has gone out to all people. So I wanted to know who Jesus was and how he'd manifest himself through all of these types of people. So in college, I started really heavily reading the Gospels. I had a wonderful um, growing period in college. Uh, For some people, University of Illinois is not a good place to be, but for me it was. I loved being an RA and sharing with a lot of people, a lot of students who'd, who'd come into my room. I enjoyed being a part of Campus Crusade and their Bible studies there. But the Gospel and Jesus Christ himself was really what jumped off the page at me during that time in my life. After college, I got married two weeks after graduation to Michelle. And two weeks later, I started my first job at an elevator company. It was 2009. You take what you can get. (laughs) It's been a great career for me. At the end of the summer, they sent me here to D.C. I had no clue where I was going to go. They said, you're going to go to D.C., be there in two weeks. Okay. That was fortunate because it's one of the best places in a down economy to be near the federal government. Good things. So we planted ourselves here in D.C. And when I got here, I'd done all this study in the epistles. I'd done all this study in the gospels. And I wanted to know then, okay, well, what about the larger biblical narrative? And I started digging into the Old Testament and seeing how all of these things I read in the New Testament were fulfillments of things that had been said in the Old Testament. And I really started investigating this biblical narrative. At the time, when we first came here, we went to a church in Arlington called Cherrydale Bible Church. We spent five and a half years there being the youth leaders, led the youth group. I did some preaching there. We were heavily involved. And that church became our family as we were away from Chicago. After about five and a half years, we felt that the Lord wanted us to to move closer into a church that looked like the community where we lived, 
and was near to the community where we lived, in Landover, right next to FedEx Field. And so we started doing a search for a church east of the river. And if you look four years ago, it was a different landscape than it is now. We started praying at the time that God would start planting more solidly Bible, solid Bible churches east of the river. And he started to answer that prayer through Anacostia River Church, Mercy of Christ Fellowship, Chevrolet Baptist, and others. And when we came to ARC, we knew week one, yeah, this is the place. But we didn't want to be too hasty, so we waited a little bit to join. But I can tell you, Anacostia River Church has had a bigger impact on our family than probably anything else. Both Michelle and I have grown here. We have been astounded by how you've brought us in and loved us, um, allowed us to be a part of this great family. We feel as though it's been a wonderful place for us to flourish in our respective ministries. Michelle at home and amongst friendships here. Me going to work and feeling as though I can come and tell you about things that have happened at work and for you to pray for them and to encourage me in them. Um, Anacostia for the past three years has been wonderful for us. And I want to thank you for that. We have a little girl, Maddie Ray, who was born five years ago. So many of you have been so kind to her. Always talks about Miss Carol and what Miss Carol brought her and what she got from Miss Carol. It's amazing. Her best friend, Emmy. Emmy this, Emmy that. And so many of you who've been a part of her life. And so we're growing in grace. God has dealt generously with me. He has peacefully bound me in the truth with Anacostia River Church and with all other believers. And I'm thankful to him for such a wonderful testimony that I can claim as my own and to be able to claim God as my own. So let's pray and we'll sing some more. Thank you for allowing me to share. And if you have any questions about my testimony or any clarifying things you want to figure out, come talk to me. Be happy to chat with you, get to know you better. Dear Lord, we thank you that we are peacefully bound in the truth. We thank you that you have provided so great a salvation by grace. We thank you that it is not dependent on us and our works that we could approach you, but that you did all the work, that you did the work on the cross to die for our sins, and that you rose again showing that you are the true God, the true God who provides us a truth to be bound peacefully in. We ask for your grace as we continue to worship, and we thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.